Yeah, thanks, uh, Ollie. Um, yeah, well, um, this week um, I'm going to talk about tanks as we advertised um, in terms of our little picture in this week's weekly work of the picture is of a Challenger 2 a tank, 14 of which are going to be sent to Ukraine at some point. Uh, quite frankly, and I think everyone would admit that, that uh, in and of themselves, they, they're utterly irrelevant. They'll make no difference, uh, but they are highly symbolic. And um, what matters um, is that, uh, to use a phrase, a red line has been crossed with the decision to send uh, these tanks. Um, but of course, the real, the real battle at the moment is within NATO, um, and that is, um, will Germany uh, supply not 14, but hundreds of um, Leopard 2 uh, tanks? And Germany is being turning around, so, well, you know, we will supply Leopard 2 tanks if the United States supplies Abraham M1s, uh, these are um, heavy, you know, battle tanks, main, main battle uh, tanks. So they're not like the armored uh, personnel carriers or, um, you know, um, lighter material that was uh, announced uh, a few weeks ago. Um, this is heavy um, armor. Um, and I have to say that uh, it's the first time I've heard, you know, when it comes to uh, American commentators uh, talking about the uh, Abraham um, M1 uh, tank, how useless it is, how, how it's completely unsuited for the Ukrainians because it uses um, jet fuel. Um, it's very hard to maintain. Uh, it's very sophisticated. And, oh, dear, um, lots of them are in the middle of uh, the United States, as if the, the United States doesn't have bases in, in Germany and uh, uh, in Central uh, Europe. So, um, yeah, this is the first time I've, I've come across any uh, commentators uh, talking about the kit and equipment of their own country uh, running it down. Uh, so much. So I did what anyone would do, and uh, that's look up top top tanks in the world. And uh, there you are. Uh, what did I find? Abraham's M1 is one of the top tanks in the world. Incredibly sophisticated, very fast. Um, yeah. Um, also, yeah, the Leopard 2 uh, is uh, up there as well. Uh, so is the Challenger 2. And just for the sake of it, I also found, I didn't know about this particular one, the Black Panther. This is produced in South Korea and is also rated by tank aficionados as one of the best tanks in the world, along with, I should add, uh, the T-14, which is the latest uh, Russian tank, which apparently is going to be deployed in Ukraine. Um, but according to the British Ministry of Defence, it's going to be kept away uh, from the front line uh, just in case it suffers reputational uh, damage. Because we've seen loads of pictures, haven't we, of um, uh, 
smashed up uh, T-72s and T-74s. Uh, and the idea is that this wouldn't help the export market uh, if we saw lots of pictures of bashed up uh, T-14s. Now, it's true uh, that if we take uh, the Abrahams M1 tank, um, it, it's the latest stuff, but the Abrahams tank has been in service with uh, the US armed forces for decades now. So you can look back, you know, to 1980, I think it was first deployed. And obviously since then it's been refurbished, upgraded. And basically one would gather uh, that all the little wriggles and niggles uh, that new equipment uh, causes has been ironed out uh, over those 40 years. So the idea uh, that this is too sophisticated or uh, beyond uh, the ken uh, of Ukraine, Ukrainian uh, tank crews to operate, I just don't buy this. So it's clearly, you know, what is clearly on the agenda uh, 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 is pressurizing uh, Germany. Uh, now it's possible uh, that Britain sent its, uh, or agreed to send its 14 Challenger two tanks to Ukraine, um, you know, on a spur of the moment decision by Rishi Sunak and Ben Wallace, the uh, defense secretary. But I just somehow uh, don't believe it. Um, you know, my suspicion is that first of all, this was agreed uh, with Joe Biden uh, and the US uh, administration and this is a way that both of them uh, are going out to pressurize Germany uh, to become more directly involved um, in the war. They're already involved in supplying uh, a big range of military equipment, uh, but tanks, uh, the idea of um, Russian uh, tanks fighting German tanks is clearly gonna be a propaganda gift uh, to Putin and uh, the FSB regime in, in Moscow, and they will play it for all that they're worth. And my guess is also that uh, the threat, uh, the promise, call it whatever you will, um, by Poland, that we will supply our uh, Leopard 2 tanks to Ukraine, whether Germany agrees or not, is part of that um, Anglo-American, but crucially American push. Uh, to uh, push uh, Germany um, 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 into the um, uh, Ukraine uh, theater. Okay, um, so what is this about? It's also about the bigger picture, which we've repeatedly argued that um, this isn't just a clash between uh, plucky uh, Ukraine on the one side and uh, dastardly Putin and uh, Russia on the other. This is a proxy war uh, that's being fought by NATO. Uh, NATO has plowed in billions and billions and billions worth uh, of equipment. Um, you can look um, at um, Ukraine basically threatening the um, eastern uh, regions, the breakaway regions. Uh, one can go back to 2014, all of that. Um, you'd have to do in order to arrive at uh, a proper analysis of what's going on in Ukraine. But I would also argue that we need to look at US plans 
uh, either to force, and there are divisions clearly uh, in the US administration uh, on this, uh, uh, either to force uh, Moscow to the negotiating table uh, or, quote unquote, reduce uh, Russia uh, to the level of a giant uh, um, Iran. But also, I would add, on top of that, we need to put China uh, in the picture and recognize that this is part of a wider struggle by the United States to reassert its hegemony and to see off its only serious challenger when it comes to global hegemony. And of course, that isn't uh, Russia. Russia, well, did have a reputation of having a fearsome, um, uh, you know, armed forces. It's definitely got fearsome uh, arsenal of uh, nuclear weapons. But the the only full spectrum challenger um, potentially uh, to the United States is clearly China. And so if we look at what's going on in Ukraine, we need to put into the picture Hong Kong. Uh, we need to look at the Uyghurs. We need to look at Tibet. We need to look at the, you know, uh, the China Sea. We need to look at Taiwan. And we need to recognize, as I said, the wider uh, picture here. Okay, meanwhile, we have uh, um, reports of some Russian offensive in the south. Um, apparently, some small towns, villages, I'm not quite sure, uh, are, are, are under a threat. Uh, as we argued in the Weekly Worker um, last year, you know, in December, uh, we didn't think that, um, you know, uh, winter. Uh, would be a de facto ceasefire. We thought that the war would continue uh, in winter. It's true it becomes more difficult if there's mud. Um, so that will vary from part to part uh, of Ukraine. But in general, um, at least my assessment was, is that Ukraine um, is better equipped because of NATO, because of this massive influx of equipment is better equipped to fight a winter war uh, than Russia. That, that, that was my uh, look at it. So the war would continue, uh, in other words, um, in winter. And we've seen that in the Eastern Front because of Russia, not because of Ukraine. It's Russia that's on the offensive there and also in the South. Now, how real um, the Southern offensive is, we have to wait and see. But clearly, uh, um, this will increase pressure on Germany uh, to give the nod, to give the go-ahead uh, for the delivery of Leopard 2 tanks. Now, that could be done uh, via Poland uh, and other such countries. Nonetheless, uh, when it comes to the propaganda campaign uh, in Russia, uh, this will have a, I would have thought, a profound impact. Um, I mean, we need to understand the, the effect, the, the absolute horrendous uh, effect of World War II, the Great Patriotic War had uh, on Russia, uh, former Soviet Union. Um, I don't know how many dead, 20 million is, is one figure. Uh, either way, I do know uh, that, you know, when people used to get married, you know, they'd go along for the civil ceremony. The next thing they did would go to the local war memorial. Um, you know, it, and that will still be going on. They might now go to church uh, to get married, but the next thing that they do, they go along to the local war memorial. So deeply, deeply uh, entrenched is the memory, collective memory um, of the German 
uh, invasion. We also have, and we need to treat it um, seriously, uh, Medvedev, uh, the former Russian president, uh, talking about if Russia is defeated, uh, there's the possibility of it resorting to nuclear uh, weapons. Well, it all depends what defeat looks like, uh, but clearly, um, you know, there is a, a, an intention, uh, I don't know what percentage, but by a good slice uh, of uh, the US administration, I think, going up to um, Biden to actually inflict a defeat on Russia not simply to force it to the negotiating table to negotiate uh, a bad deal um, from Russia's point of view, uh, but I've already uh, quoted uh, the threat to reduce um, Russia to the level of an Iran. And that isn't quite the same as the US threat in Vietnam to bomb them back into the Stone Age. Uh, but nonetheless, I take it in that spirit uh, that we are going to wreck you and uh, we'll impose sanctions on you that wreck your economy, and we're going to impose a military defeat on you uh, that's going to wreck your regime. Um, so I, I, I would not dismiss uh, uh, such talk. I don't rate it as, um, you know, here I am in London, and I'm going to get out of uh, the city. But nonetheless, we need to take such talk uh, uh, seriously. OK, moving on, I'm going to be quite limited in what I'm going to say uh, today. I've only got uh, four uh, items uh, in terms of the political report. And the second uh, item is the is Scotland's gender recognition reform bill. Uh, and the emphasis, of course, is on the word bill, uh, because to make it an act, the British government, the UK government, uh, has to agree that the monarch, a uh, guy called Charles Windsor, um, has to put his signature in it on, on it or not. And while he doesn't put his signature on it, it remains a bill. It only becomes an act once it's got royal uh, assent. And of course, what the British government has done is press uh, the so-called nuclear option, which is Article 35 in the uh, 1998 uh, legislation uh, that um, um, set up the Hollywood Parliament. This is under Tony Blair, and it's never been used before. So in all of those years, the British government has never um, um, used this uh, provision uh, to block legislation uh, in Scotland. Basically, the view has been uh, that what Scotland does is up to Scotland. It's not up to uh, the government in London. So what we have in terms of uh, this particular uh, proposed piece of legislation is, uh, you know, it, it, it ain't exactly, um, how should we put it, um, turning the world upside down. This is an amendment, basically, to existing 2004 um, uh, legislation. And what is new about it is that it removes uh, the medics um, out of it. Uh, and it lowers uh, the age of when someone says that I'm male or I'm female uh, from 18 uh, to 16. So, you know, we can get into um, the ins and outs of uh, prisons, women's changing rooms, toilets, 
Uh, but my own view is that what this is, is a relatively speaking minor piece uh, of legislation involving incredibly few people. So the Scottish government tells us that under existing legislation, this is 2004 legislation, every year between 25 and 35 people reclassify themselves. And they expect with their new legislation, as I said, that gets rid of the, the medics and lowers the age limit to 16, that that will go up maybe uh, to 150. So that's in a population, I don't know what Scotland's population is, is it 5.5 million? It's a tiny, 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 tiny percentage. And I'm sure in all of these things, all sorts of ambiguous situations are created with this law or that law. But I do think that people have the wit to sort these particular questions out. Of course, there will be those that, you know, I use the word in inverted commas, uh, will take advantage of this legislation. But the idea that loads of people will become, um, you know, gender reassignment tourists in, in Scotland, I do find uh, rather um, improbable. I don't think the world will come to an end um, if, the, um, if the monarch put his signature um, on this bill and made it um, uh, into an act. And clearly, what's going on has got very little to do actually uh, when it comes to the British government uh, with some concern uh, for a tiny, tiny, tiny fraction um, of the Scottish population. What this is, is an opportunity to take on the Scottish National Party. And it's clear that the Tories are gagging uh, for a fight and are basically saying uh, to the Scottish government, come on then, make this um, into an issue and uh, we'll be glad uh, to have this fight. In other words, although Rishi Sunak has been making the case uh, not to keep fighting culture wars, this is a classic example of a culture war. And the calculation by the Tories is that amongst the wider Scottish population, will this run and run? Will this be an issue that people you know, go out on the streets, the far left might, but will masses of people uh, go out onto the streets? And indeed, can you actually mobilize uh, voters um, on this particular question? The calculation by the Tories, by um, what's her name? Kemi uh, Badenoch, she's the equalities minister, far right uh, Tory uh, minister. Remember, she ran um, in the leadership uh, contest. Her calculation clearly is that uh, this is a winner for, for the Tories, this is a loser for the SNP. I'm not necessarily convinced because of course what this is, is another illustration of um, the limits of um, autonomy, the limits um, of um, uh, Scotland um, legislating uh, for Scotland. And in other words, it has at least the potential of uh, strengthening uh, the argument uh, for full independence. But again, I'm not gonna get into um, which, which way things will go other than saying this is a fight chosen by the Tories. I don't view this piece of legislation uh, as a Nicola Sturgeon uh, provocation. Um, you know, come on London, um, um, 
um, you know, um, um, put in uh, Article 35, press the nuclear uh, uh, button. Because if we look at the debate in the Scottish Parliament, uh, roughly speaking, uh, the SNP plus the Greens, tiny number of Greens have got a majority. But what happened in the Hollywood Parliament is that that bill was passed by something like a two thirds uh, majority. Um, the Lib Dems voted for it. The Labour Party uh, voted for it on a free vote. The majority of the Tory party uh, uh, opposed it. So there were splits in uh, other parties. So in the SNP, some voted against it. So I personally don't see this as, uh, you know, some part of some master plan uh, by Nicola Sturgeon and the SNP uh, to pick a fight. But I do see it um, as an attempt to pick a fight by Rishi Sunak uh, and uh, the Tory party. That, that, that's at least my take on it. And of course, what we have in Westminster um, is Keir Starmer. Um, you know, rubbing his chin on this question and saying, well, I don't know whether I actually agree with this bill uh, when it comes to lowering the age from 18 to 16, for example. So, um, you know, in terms of a culture war, uh, we also have a division between the Labour Party in Scotland and at least the Labour leader um, um, in London. So to me, uh, this is a Tory um, offensive there's the opportunity, take it, go for it. Um, wrong, wrong foot the Labour Party, wrong foot uh, the SNP. And almost certainly what this will um, end up in is the Supreme Court. And I haven't got a clue uh, what the Supreme Court will decide. You know, has London got the right uh, to um, um, veto it under Article 35? Well, yes, they have the right um, Again, I don't. I just don't want to go there. I just don't know enough. I was certainly convinced that uh, the Supreme Court would um, find against uh, the Scottish government, uh, Nicola Sturgeon, when it came to an Indy two um, advisory uh, referendum. I, I didn't think the Supreme Court would agree uh, to that. They didn't. But as I say, I haven't got a clue um, what I would expect the Supreme Court to decide, other than to say. Uh, that I would expect it would it, this that this will end up uh, in the Supreme Court, and indeed, even if the King um, had put his signature to it, you would expect um, voices in Scotland uh, to force it to the Supreme Court uh, as well, because there was opposition, as I said, to this legislation not only from the Tories but with inside uh, the SNP uh, it, itself. Just a final comment um, from me on this whole extremely difficult uh, question, other than to say, I think that Scotland should have the right uh, to decide such uh, questions as I understand it. For example, in the United States, uh, various states, and we can argue against state rights, and I would, uh, but at the present time in the United States, various um, states have different legislation for example, when it comes to marriage, uh, doesn't cause, it doesn't cause uh, the United States, uh, you know, to come crashing down uh, and, and all the rest of it. Yes, so there will be different legislation in Scotland compared with England and Wales and Northern Ireland. That's already the case for a whole variety of uh, different questions. So mortgages, um, 
uh, jury trials, you know, oh, I could carry on. Uh, but Scotland has a distinct legal system that is very different uh, to England and Wales, uh, for example, and has managed since uh, the Act of Union uh, pretty well in spite uh, of that. Just a final comment, though, um, um, on this uh, question. I think it's at least worthwhile um, when it comes to this argument between uh, advocates of trans rights and so-called TERFs that what we have in our society uh, is a great deal of pressure on especially young people uh, to conform to uh, various um, extreme stereotypes. So to be a man is to be a man and uh, have lots of muscles. And here you are, I, I'm, you know, I'm not a big, uh, beefy, six foot something man with muscles rippling all over uh, the place. Ditto with women. Women are meant to conform to certain stereotypes. And that produces an awful lot of uh, mental suffering uh, for those that don't conform uh, to these stereotypes, especially uh, uh, when you're young. And I personally would turn the mirror back away from people who aren't un people who are unhappy uh, with being, um, you know, pressurized to uh, conform to this or that particular stereotype and turn it round on society itself. So, for example, we used to hear too damned often from comrades on the left, not least in and around uh, our British Socialist Workers' Party, they used to go around boasting, um, um, boasting, I'm emphasizing it, uh, the number of sex change operations there are in Iran. And you sort of point out, well, that's a choice that people have. Either we execute you for homosexual activity, seriously, or you have a sex change operation. And the SWP were putting it forward as something progressive and shows you how advanced uh, Iran was. Well, no, I would turn it around and saying, saying no, there's something deeply reactionary in a society uh, that gives people the choice of a sex change operation or, or execution. Obviously, that's not what's going on in Britain. Nonetheless, we do have this conformist uh, culture where you look at other societies um, you know, um, you know, pre-capitalist societies and you have this intersex thing, you can have a, a fluidity uh, when it comes to um, sexuality. Um, uh, a week or so ago, we had uh, at Communist University, Chris Knight telling us about, uh, is it the San people in Southern Africa whose women have this Elan bull dance of where they say, look at me, I'm male, I have a penis. And indeed, I am a, a bull. I'm, I'm, a, I'm an Eland. Um, so, yeah, in terms of other societies, we don't have that sort of rigidity uh, that we're often presented with um, in um, capitalist uh, uh, society. OK, moving on. Third item. Um, we've had um, the sacking and uh, prosecution of someone called David Carrick. Um, he has been found guilty of 49 charges of rape, uh, assault, false imprisonment, and he was a serving metropolitan policeman in the elite diplomatic protection squad. So someone who is armed, someone who guards um, uh, foreign dignitaries and uh, um, embassies. 
And um, yeah, um, I mean, I've read a little bit about it, not much, uh, but the way he, he prosecuted um, uh, over his treatment of 12, 12 women over a whole number uh, of years. But what I want to do uh, is not so much comment on uh, his particular case. What I wanted to do is to comment on the coverage of it uh, in Socialist Worker this week, the paper of the Socialist Workers Party. Because while I've got um, differences of nuance uh, with it, and this is an article, by the way, this is a um, editorial uh, uh, comment. While I've got differences with the editorial commentary on detail, and I'll elaborate on that, fundamentally, I agree with the comrades. And what they basically say is that uh, the police reflect the system that they serve, uh, and the police, therefore, um, are full of racist, bullies, homophobes, homophobes, and sexists. And they also go on to say uh, that no reform, no inquiries, no reviews will change uh, matters. And what you've got to do is get rid of the police force. So on the front, they say abolish the metropolitan police force, which is a wide, widely held view. Uh, the metropolitan uh, police force is basically five times bigger than any other police force in England, Wales or Scotland, um, for example. So it's a huge force. And this force is under uh, both the mayor, the London mayor, but also under the Home Secretary. So this is a sort of the nearest we've got to a state uh, police force. The police, of course, is an arm of the state, uh, but this is run in part directly from the Home um, Office. OK, so where do I disagree? This is the minor uh, disagreement. If you actually look at the police, the police aren't simply full of bigots, homophobes, sexists, and all the rest of it. What you get is a division between rank and file uh, uh, police and the top police. And it, all studies will reveal that. So the head of the Metropolitan Police will know all the right phrases, how to present um, himself, it's now a him, to parliament uh, without putting a foot wrong, will say all the politically correct uh, um, stuff and perhaps has completely internalized that and believes it. And when uh, they look at the rank and file, for example, posting um, obscene messages, when they look at uh, um, serving police, uh, members of the police, uh, the Metropolitan Police have been done uh, for rape and murder. Uh, they're horrified. There was a, a case uh, a short time ago of two Metropolitan Police posing next to the dead body of a young black woman who had been murdered in a, in a London park. I think those at the head of the Met are horrified uh, by that. And I, and I know um, from um, personal uh, contacts that the Met force itself is divided between various police stations that have a, a gay friendly uh, culture and other uh, police stations that have most definitely the exact opposite uh, culture. In other words, you know, if you come out with um, uh, an anti-gay diatribe in one police station, uh, your colleagues will be on to you and uh, demanding that you be sent away for 
you know, equality training or, or something like that. And in another police force, uh, the culture is exactly uh, the difference. But what I would argue is that racism, stereotyping, is something that's self-reinforcing at the bottom of the police, because what we need to understand about the police is that fundamentally, and that's true if we look back at the foundation of the uh, modern police force in Britain, what the police force is really about is not so much catching uh, burglars um, or rapists or murderers, that is part of their job, that's certainly true, but the main job is to preserve law and order. And the main job of the police precisely uh, is to maintain the rule of the state. And that is against the threat of the working class, the radical movement, not just petty uh, criminals. So uh, in Britain, uh, the Chartist movement, the left wing, uh, knew perfectly well uh, what the peelers um, were all about. This was a, a weapon used against them. Um, this had nothing to do with thief catching. And um, yeah, that's been forgotten uh, in Britain. Uh, that's certainly true. Um, so in Britain, we did have the myth of, um, um, how should you put it, the local Bobby. And uh, that was uh, exemplified, uh, ironically, in a TV series called Doxon, Doxon, Dixon, excuse me, <laughs> Doxon. Dixon of Doc Green, which was played by an ancient um, actor, can't remember his name offhand, uh, but the irony I'm coming to is that, that series, long, long running series, was written by one Lord Willis, and Lord Willis was the former leader of the, something along the lines of the Labour League of Youth, and he was actually a member of the Young Communist League and the Communist Party uh, of Great Britain. So in the 50s, yeah, there was this, this image of the friendly Bobby. British police were traditionally unarmed. Uh, that has taken a severe battering uh, over the years to the point now where respectable head teachers are urging uh, uh, women in particular uh, that if they are confronted by a lone male policeman, not to trust them. Uh, that's how bad uh, things have got. But anyway, the long and the short of it is that I, uh, while I say I, I've got differences of nuance uh, with the uh, comrades in the SWP, I agree with them um, in terms of the conclusion, abolish the Met Police, which I say is a widespread um, thing now that goes into the Lib Dems, various levels of the Labour Party, maybe even some Tories. Uh, would agree with that. But then their uh, editorial is actually he then headlined inside, abolish the police. Well, I agree with that uh, slogan for the reasons I've uh, just uh, explained. But then the question comes, comrades, what do you replace it by? Are you seriously saying that we will um, pass legislation that abolishes the police and you do nothing else? And I mean, to me, that ain't a vote winner and uh, it, it would border on craziness. And uh, so what are you going to replace the police with? Well, when we've moved the idea, the traditional idea, not just of the left, but all radicals going back hundreds, literally, of years of the popular militia, 
What does the SWP uh, do? It does the same as most comrades on the left, and that is titter. Uh, ha, 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 what a silly idea. Um, uh, we can't have that. In other words, they've internalized uh, the idea of the Bobby. Uh, they've internalized the idea of the standing um, army. Uh, we say replace uh, um, uh, the police force, an alienated uh, force, uh, an anti-working class force uh, with a popular militia. Now, a popular militia, as Engels famously explained in his pamphlet, Can Europe Disarm? Uh, this is the ideal body uh, for us to stage a rebellion um, against um, counter-revolution. It's not guaranteed, but the, this is the best body uh, that we would have available uh, uh, to us because it will be made up of uh, ordinary people, because the discipline wouldn't be of a military iron sort imposed from above. It would be something that very much more uh, comes uh, from below. Okay, lastly, um, we've been having a couple of, uh, well, a whole series of um, news items, um, um, you know, about what is called government sleaze, uh, that's been going on for a whole number of years, but the latest two items are just worthwhile flagging. Uh, for me, it's, well, you would expect it, wouldn't you? And so what we have is news that poor old Boris Johnson couldn't manage on his uh, prime ministerial salary. I know since he's retired, he's been on the uh, talk circuit, not least in the United States, and uh, been amassing a small, modest fortune uh, for his uh, efforts, but given the number of children, I don't know how many children he's got. He knows, I think, how many children he's got, but he don't tell anyone. Uh, we know about how many ex-wives he's got, and we know about some of his children, and one can only but guess how expensive that is when you're just on a prime ministerial uh, salary. So what he was doing while he was prime minister uh, was um, uh, trying to get people uh, to give him loans. And uh, what we've just found out is that one Richard Sharp um, um, put himself uh, next to Boris and said, well, look, I can sort you something out. I've got this friend. And the friend was called or is called Sam Blythe. And Sam, good old Sam, obliged with 800,000 uh, quid uh, to help poor old Boris out. Um, because he was uh, feeling the pinch, um, you know, on his very modest uh, prime ministerial um, salary. Well, all very well and good, you say. So what? Well, except a couple of weeks after um, good old friend Richard um, had arranged this um, um, subsidy uh, for Boris Johnson, he's appointed <laughs> under Boris Johnson's nomination to head the BBC. So um, you would go, well, there's something a bit fishy there. And anybody you talk to in the BBC will tell you uh, that the agenda in the BBC is ever more right wing, uh, that there's pressure uh, to um, basically shift your discourse uh, to something uh, that is acceptable uh, to the Tory party. Sometimes journalists rebel against that. Nonetheless, that's the pressure on you. And I'll illustrate it 
uh, just to um, you know give you the flavour of it. That in Britain today, um, workers, as you know, are um, staging protest uh, strikes in very large numbers. Um, and according to the BBC, what they're after is a pay rise. Well, actually, what it turns out in almost every, every dispute, what they're out to do is to prevent a wage cut. That having experienced wage cuts over the last X years, and it varies from uh, one group of workers to another, given 10% inflation, what the government, and we're talking about where the government is either the employer or subsidizes the employer, what we're talking about is the government insisting on a, a, a pay deal that actually means a real cut in the take-home pay of nurses, ambulance workers, teachers, college lecturers, civil servants, and the list uh, continues. So to me, uh, that's evidence um, of a Tory agenda uh, that's either explicit or implicit uh, in terms of BBC reporting. And the other story is about the former chancellor, uh, today's um, chair of the Tory party, Nadim Zouawi. I understand that he's the second richest um, MP in the House of Commons, the richest, uh, if you combine his wealth with his wife's wealth, I think is Rishi Sunak. I think they're in the billionaire uh, status. I think poor old uh, Nadim is merely in the um, three quarters of a billion uh, status. So he's, you know, quite poor uh, in uh, comparison to uh, the prime minister. Either way, he's just paid. I don't know what the exact figure is. Is it 1.3 million um, settlement with uh, Her His Majesty's, let me get it right, His Majesty's Custom um, and um, Customs, well, it used to be excises. Anyway, you get the point, the Treasury, let's call it just the Treasury, paid over a million pounds um, to come to some deal uh, on his tax receipts. And this is, this isn't, oh, he's paid a million quid taxes. This is a million quid after they queried the fact uh, that he didn't reveal his full share um, um, ownership. And what it turns out is that he didn't uh, reveal the fact that for um, uh, tax purposes, his uh, share of owning uh, YouGov, which is a, an opinion uh, poll uh, uh, company, uh, which is owned by him via an offshore company in Gibraltar. He didn't declare that. And uh, I mean, this isn't, a, a, you know, a minor company. Uh, this is a profitable, uh, lucrative uh, company, um, hence the um, million plus uh, uh, payment. And what he says is this was a let me get it right. A careless mistake. Careless mistake. Well, quite a lot of Tories don't think that that's possible. Obviously, the Labour Party, you don't need to me to tell you, doesn't think that that's likely either. And what we have um, is people saying uh, that was he open or honest about his tax affairs? And the answer is, well, of course, he wasn't. Uh, of course, he wasn't open and honest. And the idea I mean, we're not talking about him as an individual, are we? Because he obviously employs accountants, you know, given he's got three quarters of a billion, he doesn't sit there 
and look at his tax form and say, oh, how do I fill in this one? He's got professionals, the best professionals, in order to minimise uh, his tax payments, but to make sure as a politician, everything is, you know, uh, every T is crossed and every I is dotted. It's a bit like saying that with Rishi Sunak's wife, it was an oversight. It was careless uh, for her to register as a non-dom, non, non, you know, domestic uh, player, and uh, uh, pay her taxes. In other words, pay her taxes um, um, in India uh, as opposed to where she lives uh, in Britain. That was just an oversight. Well, of course it wasn't. Uh, this would be this would be something uh, that she. Uh, you know, applied to have that status that her tax advisors would recommend it because this will save millions and millions and millions uh, of pounds in taxes every year, not just, you know, over 20 or 30 year period, but literally millions um, um, every year. Meanwhile, um, as I was saying, what we've got is British workers who are suffering real cuts in their living standards. Uh, workers who are on full-time wages who cannot afford to heat their houses in this winter uh, because of the cost of energy, workers who are going to food banks, uh, workers who are expected to take uh, a pay cut. And what we've got on February the 1st, it's a, a coincidence, this isn't the TUC organising it, unfortunately. What we've got is hundreds of thousands uh, of workers in the civil servants, service in the NHS, um, right across the board uh, going on strike. It needs to be emphasized, of course, uh, that uh, what we have here is not an example of militant action. What this is, is an example of protest uh, politics. Characteristically, these strikes last a day or two days, that what we have is a strike maybe twice a month something along those lines. So this is nothing uh, to do with a rerun of uh, the early 80s and the um, uh, 1970s. If you look at strike figures of that period, uh, then we were dealing with millions uh, of days lost in inverted commas uh, in industrial action. Today, while I very much welcome it, uh, anyone on the left would welcome uh, this um, surge uh, of discontent, we need to recognize that the trade union bureaucracy uh, is basically running um, a situation of protest. Um, uh, this isn't the same as the winter of discontent. This isn't the same as the miners' great strike. Uh, this isn't the same uh, as what was going on uh, in the 70s. And of course, what this is about, as I've said, uh, this is about them limiting uh, pay cuts. This isn't about real advances in pay, real advances uh, in, in conditions. This is a defensive battle. But of course, a defensive battle can um, very easily turn around to being an offensive uh, uh, battle. After all, what the government is threatening is legislation, uh, that imposes uh, minimum service levels, which are decided by a government minister, uh, and what they are going to allow um, is overriding um, uh, the agreement that they came to way, way, way back in the last century, in the early part of the 
last century that striking workers would not get sacked um, uh, by the employers and the trade union would not be liable uh, for losses uh, suffered uh, by um, the employer. Uh, that, that's the proposal uh, that the Tories have got in hand and that has the potential um, of politicising uh, these strikes and turning uh, what at the moment at least is a defensive battle into an offensive uh, battle. And certainly what we would be demanding and what a lot of uh, comrades in the trade union movement are demanding is not just the stopping of the latest uh, legislation, uh, but the scrapping of all anti-trade uh, union laws. In our view, the state should have nothing to do uh, with the internal workings uh, of the trade union movement. Uh, the working class should be autonomous and should organize its associations and its withdrawal of labor uh, uh, according to what it sees uh, as beneficial. Um, so while we stand for the abolition of the wages system, while the wages system lasts, the working class has really only got one serious um, weapon in its hands, and that is collective action to limit the competition between workers. Uh, we do not take the view uh, that there's an equal relationship between employers and workers. We certainly don't take the view uh, that uh, workers should compete one with another uh, in the workplace. To, for us, uh, that is a gift uh, to employers and no, no, uh, and certainly explains why they uh, stand by the idea of um, equal rights in the workplace. Uh, that's it.